This is the Blacklist Podcast. I'm your host, Franklin Leonard, founder and CEO of the Blacklist. As always, joined by Kate Hagan, director of community at the Blacklist. Another great conversation today. Film historian, cultural commentator, podcaster extraordinaire. If you're not listening to her podcast, you must remember this. You must be out yo damn mind. And I say that sincerely. Like, it's a really, really good podcast. Listen to her podcast. Our guest today is Karina Longworth. Kate, what a great conversation. What a great human. Yeah, Karina is the best. We got a peek behind the curtain of where the magic happens for You Must Remember This. But we're going to talk about much more than just the podcast. We're going to talk about Karina's love for Judy Garland and the 50s version of A Star is Born. We're going to talk about what it's like to portray subjects on the podcast with a personal interest for her. We're going to talk about the current series of You Must Remember This, which is focused on the wonderful and late great Polly Platt. And Karina has some really interesting pulls from the catalog. She's going to tell us about a Pepsi commercial. You guys are going to want to YouTube right after the episode. It's a great combo. Yeah. In short, Karina's a legend, and this is a great conversation. So enjoy. Here's Kate and Franklin and Karina. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Karina, we love to begin every conversation the same way, which is asking if you can remember the first movie you saw in a movie theater and please set the scene for us. Oh, wow. I don't know if I could remember specifically what it is, but my mom used to take me to see all of the Disney animated films, which were all being re-released theatrically in the 80s. So I definitely remember seeing Bambi with her and Fantasia, um, Snow White. You know, they all kind of blur together. I know the first live-action film I ever saw was Flight of the Navigator. And I remember specifically, like, back then, all those sort of big movie palaces downtown in L.A., they were all open as movie theaters. And this was sort of – we ended up kind of usually going ultimately to City Walk to see movies, but that hadn't opened yet. And so it was like to go to the movies. You could go to a mall in the valley, but it was kind of more fun to go downtown or to go to Westwood. And so my mom would usually take me either to one of these downtown movie theaters or to Westwood. So I definitely remember seeing Flight of the Navigator like in the middle of the day in an almost empty downtown movie theater. When did those finally stop showing movies as a matter of regular course? I I just realized I never really thought about that. I was like, yeah, they obviously were movie theaters and then they ceased to be. But I'd never really had a clear sense of when that transition happened. Yeah, I, I don't know the exact date either, but just sort of anecdotally as somebody living in Los Angeles, I definitely didn't go see movies downtown by the 90s. Fascinating. I wonder if the I mean, not to make it about the riots, but like, I wonder if the riots were actually the end of that 
run. It might have been. I mean, downtown L.A. in the 90s was definitely, as somebody living in Studio City and in, you know, a white community, you were told to be afraid of downtown L.A. I mean, I was told that when I moved to L.A. in 2003. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's, like, actually going downtown and living downtown remains a relatively recent phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even when I moved people. back to L.A. in 2010, I was on this, like, listserv of, of journalists and writers. And I was like, I'm thinking about moving into a loft apartment in downtown L.A. because I'm going to try to live in L.A. without a car and I could take public transit anywhere from there. And everybody on this list serve was like, you know, downtown in L.A. isn't like in other cities. (laughs) Um, That's amazing and terrifying at the same (laughs) time. Do you remember the movie that that made you fall in love with movies? For It was almost definitely The Wizard of Oz. So when I was growing up, we didn't have a VCR until the late 80s, but my mother's dad did. And so they used to show The Wizard of Oz on TV, like, you know, NBC, ABC, something like that, every Thanksgiving. And so my grandfather taped it on his VCR with all the commercials. And then I'd go over to his house, and while he was hanging out with my parents, they'd just put on The Wizard of Oz for me. So I watched it over and over and over again with the commercials. And so I thought that Billy Crystal doing his Pepsi commercial was part of it. (laughs) I was just going to ask if you remember the commercials. I love The thing is, I think we're of the same era. I think I know which Pepsi commercial you're talking about, which is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it's the You Look Marvelous. Yeah, that's Yeah, where he's like (laughs) looking at the can. (laughs) It, it, you know, I, I almost feel like I want to do like some kind of history of Pepsi commercials from the 80s and 90s because there were some incredible ones. I This is a long story. And I'll try to make it short. But I just kind of got into the sitcom Anything But Love starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Richard Lewis. And the first episode of that is on YouTube with the commercials. And there's this Pepsi commercial and it's Robert Palmer doing like the Simply Irresistible video, but changing the lyrics slightly so that it's about the Pepsi can. I remember this one. Yeah, that's actually, I mean, I guess, yeah, when you're Pepsi, you got to go hard on the ads because you're just trying to go after like a a hegemon in the field. And so the more sort of notable, the better. So you're paying people. Yeah. You're paying big celebs. Yeah. I'm really obsessed with like the YouTube rabbit hole of 80s and 90s, just commercial compilations. And you're like, oh, my God, this was just like buried in my subconscious. I didn't even know it was in there still. I lose enough time on the internet as it is. That is not an addiction that I need. (laughs) Okay, ideal movie watching setup. Ideal? Yeah, like at home or in the theater. Oh, in the theater. All right. Either one or both, but like, like, where do you sit? Well, let's start with this. Where do you sit in the theater? Usually pretty close because I'm short and my husband's short. <laughs> and so we don't want there to be too many people in front of us. And I also just, I, I like, I like feeling kind of immersed by the screen. I want to, I want to forget that I'm in a room, but at the same time, I find that I focus so much better on a film watching it in public rather than watching it at home where there's so many distractions. You know, even though we have a big screen to watch a movie on and good sound and stuff, that lure of your phone or, or the lure to like go get another drink or whatever it is, I just, I still really prefer going to a place to see a film. Do you have precautions in place to prevent you from doing that in your home uh, experience? Oh, what kind of precautions can there be? I don't know. I can, like, I can (laughs) 100% imagine like hardcore cinephiles sort of getting to a place where like let's lock the phones in a lockbox that has like a two and a half like you set a timer don't have access to it you know you got to get all the snacks in the room with some abundance so you don't have to go back to the kitchen yeah I I try to do that in well this might be a rationalization for the volume of snacks that I put together before I watch a movie but I try to do avoid going back to the kitchen in that way right well our house is we have the kitchen upstairs and the room where we watch stuff is downstairs and the people who lived 
here before had a dumbwaiter where you could like move stuff, you know, on a little levee from room to room, but they took it out. And we don't know why they took Bastards. it with them when they left, but they did. And so we wait. They took. They actually took the dumbwaiter with them. Yeah, I think maybe they were just going to install it in their next house or something. So there's like a shaft, but there's nothing to move inside the shaft. And so we, when we moved in, we tried to figure out if we could just replace it. And you have to hire an elevator company, get a permit, and it was like just to get somebody to show up and see if it was possible. It was going to be five figures, and so we never. Did it. All right, I just have to make this joke. <laughs> I am dumbfounded. <laughs> anyway, all right, whatever. It was right there. I had to do it. I'll shut we'll up. We'll add now. the badum bump. Exactly. In the house. <laughs> It'll be great. I'll, 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 I'll be quiet for the rest of the conversation. <laughs> this is kind of a two-part question. Is there a moment that you saw a character on screen that you sort of really identified with? That sort of oh damn, that's me moment, which could be viewed as you know which movie character throughout all of history you sort of identify most with as well. Gosh, I don't know. That's that's a tough one. I know that I definitely one of the reasons why I got into classic Hollywood films when I was a teenager was because. I felt like there, when just in sort of films of the 90s, you know, film, Hollywood films that were coming out in, you know, when I was 15, 16 years old, I didn't see the kind of attitude in female characters that I felt. And so I gravitated towards somebody like Lauren Bacall, who was just always over it and rolling her eyes, or somebody like Jane Russell, who was just being sarcastic and and who it seemed to enjoy her femininity, but not in a way where it was prissy or where it was sort of oppressive to men. I don't know if that's that makes sense, but in the 90s, there was this sense of like femininity was very pink and princessy. And the femininity I was seeing in in classic Hollywood films was not like that. I got to take us back a little bit and fangirl for just a minute, Karina. I think you might be the (laughs) film writer I've been reading the longest. Cinematical was the first movie blog I ever really fell in love with and started like being like, this is appointment sort of reading for me on a regular basis. And I think a lot of that was because the way you were writing about not just contemporary Hollywood, but calling on classic Hollywood through this lens of feminism, especially in an era when we, it was just like ain't it cool and alt dot forums and not a lot for female film fans but as one of the original movie bloggers I'm wondering what it's been like to watch the sort of shift in the way audiences talk about movies write about movies share movies especially as things like film twitter have become a huge force in the way that blogging once was as well especially because you were one of the first sort of advocates of movie blogging as a really legitimate form of film criticism so I'm just curious what it's been to watch that sort of shift in the ecosystem since the days of Cinematical. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I don't know that I necessarily have the ability to have a kind of wide-angle perspective on it because I'm sort of always in it, you know, and I've gone on this this sort of strange path of, you know, I only was doing film blogging because I couldn't get a job at a magazine, right? So then film blogging kind of blows up and it allows me to get a job at a magazine <laughs> and it allowed me to become the film critic at the LA Weekly. And then I, you know, sort of had this sort of establishment job at this moment where the film criticism establishment was falling apart. And so then I kind of had to go independent again and find a new format in the podcast. So, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that I have kind of like a bird's eye view of it. Maybe at the end of my life, I'll be able to write my memoirs and (laughs) have more perspective. But certainly, it's definitely been interesting seeing how the landscape has shifted. And I have to say, like, during the quarantine, I've been a little bit disappointed at how the sort of established publications have been 
thinking about film viewing, you know, when in this sort of lack, this vacuum of new movies coming out. So I think the more imaginative things are happening on film Twitter and and on, you know, with these sort of watch parties that have been happening and things like that. What would you like to see more of? I think that's a really good point. And I'm curious... I imagine that you spend a lot of time thinking about this even before the quarantine, but like what like what what should we be doing as a community? Well, just to, to keep it specific to criticism, mm. I mean, I one of the reasons why I felt like I had to get out of being a film critic for a weekly publication, especially a print publication, was that there was such a high volume of stuff coming out. 8 to 12 movies a week then, and there's probably more now. Or at least (laughs) when movies were coming out, there was probably more. And I was expected to see all of it and have an opinion on all of it. You know, you were just supposed to blanket the whole thing. And I don't know that that's so helpful. Um, I think that if the market warrants it, there should be as many movies in release as possible. But I think that maybe what a critic's job is to sort of help people carve the path through it. You know, and maybe it's not about running capsule reviews of every single release. Maybe it's about picking and choosing which things deserve attention. But I also just burnt out on the volume. You know, I burnt out on this idea that not only are you supposed to see everything, but you're supposed to have an opinion on everything. And the criticism that I've always been inspired by is Jim Hoberman. Jay Hoberman was a professor of mine at NYU and and was sort of a mentor for me just in the fact that I loved his writing. And he was somebody who, you know, I felt like always had kind of an idiosyncratic way of choosing what to write about, you know. And sometimes what he was interested in was a David Fincher film, and sometimes what he was interested in was a Soviet documentary. <laughs> and he would find ways of, of making connections between the material that drew his interest. And so, you know, I really like what The New Yorker has been doing during the quarantine in terms of letting Richard Brody just kind of write about whatever in these sort of capsule yeah. reviews at the front of the magazine. But then they it seems like they've kind of seeded the actual film review space, mostly to things that are not about film. Like, you know, they used to have The Current Cinema by Anthony Lane. And I think Anthony Lane has published one or two pieces over the past three months in that space. But usually that space has been reallocated. And I would just like to see more of what they're letting Richard Brody do in that other space and maybe let other voices in. It sounds like... A lot of what you're talking about is what led to You Must Remember This. And I, I, re- I just realized I never got the origin story. I've never gotten the origin story. And maybe it's been published elsewhere. And, I, and forgive me if it has, but I have you here. But, but <laughs> I, I, I'm genuinely curious. Like, How did you say, okay, mm-hmm. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this brilliant podcast with sort of stories from Hollywood history. And it's going to be a huge success. Like, that's not, you know... <laughs> that's not exactly I, what I said, but... <laughs> probably not, because that would be crazy. But I guess that's yeah. my point, though. But, like, how? What, what is the origin story? So I quit my job at the LA Weekly in January 2013 because I was so burnt out. And because I, you know, I had gone to graduate school to get a master's degree in cinema studies. And during that time, I had only studied the history of Hollywood. So that was, you know, re- I had made, spent this money, you know, made this professional decision that that was going to be my job. And then I had sort of drifted into writing about contemporary Hollywood because that was that turned into being something I could make a living at. But I wanted to get back to that original impetus. The problem is, is that there just aren't a lot of jobs for film historians. And not only are they not, you know, being advertised on Craigslist, but they just don't exist. (laughs) So it took me a while to figure out how to do what I wanted to do and if there was a place I could work or if I would have to make my own opportunity. And I taught for a while. I did a couple of commissioned books for Cahiers de Cinema, the French film magazine. Mm -hmm. And then I just kind of got to this point where as a consumer, I wasn't reading as many personal blogs. I wasn't reading 
as much online film criticism, but I was listening to a lot of podcasts, and I was finding myself, like, sometimes feeling there was too much to read, but there was never enough to listen to. You know, as a podcast consumer, I would run out of podcasts at some point in the week, and I would have a couple days where I was waiting for new things I was interested in to come out. So I just thought that if you were going to create something, you could get lost if it was just a written thing. But if there were a certain number of people like me, they would be hungry for the content in audio. And so once I kind of got that in my head, then it's like, well, what would it sound like? And then I just kind of started hearing it in my head, and then I had to figure out how to make it. How confident were you about like doing the the radio voice thing? Like this is, and I asked this only because I've had like insane anxiety about it since we launched our podcast. Mm -hmm. But you're really, really good at it, and I think at this point, like, sort of part of the reason, like, when you hear people talk about the podcast, in addition to sort of the extraordinary research, like your voice is among the things that is regularly praised. And I'm just curious, like, did you know going in, like, yeah, I got this dope voice also, so I might as well make this podcast? <laughs> no, not at all. And in fact, whenever I had done any kind of TV or radio media, I had been made fun of for having a Valley Girl accent, which is fair because I grew up in Studio City <laughs> in the 80s. So I was, I was self-conscious about my voice, and so that's why I kind of started putting on a voice a little bit to do the podcast. I mean, obviously, speaking extemporaneously like this I sound different than I do when I'm reading the scripts that I read on the podcast. But I also think I was only able to kind of find that voice because I was doing it totally DIY by myself. And so I was able to just kind of not block out what anybody else would think of me and just sit in front of a microphone and speak and kind of speak the way that I want to be heard. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I have to ask a question I've been thinking about for years. <laughs> what does a typical research process look like for an episode of You Must Remember This? Is there a typical research process? I'm just so constantly in awe of the sources you pull in where you find quotes or clips or anecdotes from it feels like you're digging through microfiche archives to bring us these episodes. Well, I have dug through microfiche, but actually I did most of that for the book I wrote about Howard Hughes. Like that research process took years and was really about trying to find primary documents. But with a podcast, I don't usually have quite that much time. And so 
What I do is once I've figured out what the topic is, I try to figure out first what the best books are, you know, what the most reliable and the most in-depth books are. And then I go through those books as bibliographies to help me find New York Times stories, fan magazine stories, anything else I can find. And then sometimes what I, I, you know, sometimes I'll have to do historical research that's not necessarily related to movies. Like, for instance, for the Blacklist season, there was a lot of trying to just understand the political history and the time period. And then sometimes you have to do that talking about Joan Crawford, you know, like you want to know what was Chicago like in 1921 when she was trying to become a dancer. You have to find out certain things like that. So I think for every subject matter, it's a little different. Certainly for the, the new season, it was totally different than it usually is because I had access to the subjects, unpublished, unfinished memoir. And so that was a really different starting point. Are there any stories you've wanted to explore that you feel like you can't because you can't source or vet them the way that you normally would with a topic for the show? Yeah, I actually have a big sort of white whale. (laughs) Somebody once suggested that I do a season on the three stars of Rebel Without a Cause who all died sort of before their time, James Dean, Sal Mineo, and Natalie Wood. And I find that fascinating. And I've always had kind of a personal connection to Natalie Wood because she died shortly after I was born and my mom was obsessed with her. And my mom was obsessed with the idea that when I was a kid, I looked like Natalie Wood when she was a kid. But the problem is there aren't any good books about James Dean. <laughs> there, are, And most of the books about Natalie Wood are written through either trying to prove who her killer was or trying to prove who the person that some people think is her killer absolutely was not her killer. And so there's just sort of a distortion. And I just found that I didn't like the material I had access to. I actually started working on that as a season. And I just found that I wasn't happy with the material I could find. And so I put it aside. But if I was able to get some kind of primary document or something like that, that like let me have an insight that is not out there already about either James Dean or Natalie Wood, then I would try it again. Guys, you heard Karina. Somebody's got to write some better (laughs) books about James Dean or Natalie Wood so she can bring us the season. Come on. Speaking of primary documents, let's talk about this season of You Must Remember This, which is focused on one of Hollywood's most fascinating women, Polly Platt. She's a personal hero of mine and absolutely should be a household name, but isn't. I am curious, you know, you mentioned having access to her unfinished memoirs via her daughters, and it's really great that you're able to sort of divorce Polly Platt from Peter Bogdanovich's legacy, which is so much of when you read about her, research her, it's all in this sort of shadow of Bogdanovich. As you're sort of reframing Polly Platt's story for a modern audience, I'm curious how you sort of balance that sense of personal responsibility, given that you have access to this kind of primary document that not a lot of other people have access to while still trying to keep that journalistic distance necessary to tell the story the way it needs to be told. Yeah, it's been tough. (laughs) You know, I interviewed both of Polly and Peter's daughters, Antonia and Sashi, and they really want their mom's story out there, you know, and so they didn't put any kind of limits on what I could and could not say. But at the same time, getting to know them, you know, you do feel like you want to not make them mad. <laughs> you want to be able to tell their mom's story in a way that doesn't unnecessarily antagonize their dad, but is honest about what their mom went through. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think that some of the challenges really were 
more about there's there's things that Polly alludes to in her memoir, but she doesn't really fully flesh out. Like a big question for me was why did she stop working with James L. Brooks? And James L. Brooks didn't respond to my request for interviews, so I couldn't ask him. And even if I did, like it would be his version of the story. It wouldn't be Polly's version. And so that was a challenge of trying to talk to people who would be able to tell me how did Polly feel in these certain situations, like what was going on that she doesn't write about to help me kind of understand those things. So that, I mean, that's really like, that was, I think, more challenging to me than trying to be objective about her writing. Because the thing about her writing is that she, so she has this reputation of being a truth teller. And a truth teller to the point that she often told people the truth when they didn't want to hear it. So you have to understand that that what that actually means when somebody writes down their life story is that oftentimes they are telling the truth as they see it and not the way that other people see it or the other way other people want to be seen. <laughs> so I've tried very hard to just kind of frame this as like, this is Polly's story. This might not be somebody else's version of the story. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think you mentioned it in the first episode, but it's like, I remember being in film school and reading Easy Riders Raging Bulls and being like, but what about Toby Rapelson? Like, what about Marsha Lucas? What about all these women who are here yeah. on the sidelines? And you don't even realize how much of the sort of lens on that period of Hollywood history has never even been questioned, that it's just the sort of male perspective on it. That's a great way of talking about the Hollywood Babylon season of You Must Remember This, which is just so fantastic. If you guys have not listened to it, particularly in this age when we are debating things like, what is a fact? Uh, what is a truth? Um, <laughs> But I think particularly the Lupe Velez episode is a really incredible look at how we can sort of invent and destroy a person through their legacy. I'm wondering, you know, particularly with classic Hollywood fans, there are a lot of older fans who sometimes have sort of more conservative views. I'm wondering how you sort of balance that line of maybe wondering listeners that might be alienated by exploring these sort of uncomfortable truths about Hollywood pasts with, you know, giving the proper amount of research and new context to stories like Lupe Velez is that totally change what we think about them. Yeah, you know, to be honest, I, I don't get much negative pushback in terms of the way I've reframed stuff. I've had a few people say to me, like, why do you always focus on the scandals? Why is every story sad? Why is everything so sordid? But I think I've been really lucky in that the classic film fans who have gravitated towards my podcast want that kind of sort of reframing. You know, they they don't necessarily want to be fed the same old stories. I know that TCM has a huge challenge in terms of their audience. Like, even a lot of their viewers don't want to watch a movie from after 1965. And so that makes the whole process very, very difficult. But I think my audience is, you know, maybe 60% people who are already interested in classical Hollywood. And then the rest are people who didn't even know that this would be something they would be interested in until they heard the podcast. So I don't really have to deal that much with that sort of establishment point of view. And now we're going to ask something really important. Okay. Uh, we are big fans of your vintage recipe posts over mm. here. Uh, and we are wondering, what have you been cooking this week? I love that you were like, we're not going to make anything trendy right now. We're <laughs> going to be pulling from like Bon Appetit 1985. Well, I do. I do remember running into your husband on like the day before the lockdown at our local butcher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then yeah, I that sounds about right. Like, oh, we're, we're, we're definitely both here doing the exact same thing right now. Yeah. Um, I actually, it's funny you say that because I've been wanting to post about a cookbook that I've been cooking from over the past week, but I've felt like Twitter has not been, it's not been the right time to have that conversation. <laughs> You know, maybe maybe soon. Yeah, that's but, true. But uh, I have been cooking from a book published in 1996 by Jane Fonda. I, I can't remember the name. I can get it to you if you want to put it in the show notes. But it's basically her being like, you can eat diet food and it's fine. It's tasty. I have a, a private chef who cooks diet food for me and I'm going to share her recipes. I believe you were referring to Jane Fonda cooking for healthy living. Yes. Yes, basically. So it's like, it's all low fat stuff, but it's like, it's not, you know, using sort of crazy sugar substitutes or anything the way a lot of the like 90s low fat cooking was. And it's all inspired by her life on her Montana ranch with Ted Turner. And so there's just like a lot of recipes for bison, which is not the (laughs) easiest thing to get right now. But we've been cooking a lot of her vegetarian recipes from it. So I made her black bean enchiladas the other night and they were Really good. Last night I made her spicy chicken burgers, which were not spicy enough. So I'm going to have to tweak that recipe the next time. But her oven-baked French fries were great. I feel like if you're going to cook from any cookbook at this moment, Jane Fonda's is probably the right one, at least. Like, yeah. like, you're, like direct, It's directionally, <laughs> I feel like, you know, it's not that Southern chef whose name escapes me and I won't repeat regardless, even if I could remember it. <laughs> you know, she's always kind of been on the, the correct side politically. Yeah, so. right? <laughs> I do love, though, that like the Ted Turner relationship resulted in a ton of bison recipes. Yeah, there's a recipe called Ted's Favorite Pizza, and it's just like her chef's like whole wheat pizza crust covered in ground bison. Bizarre second-order <laughs> consequences of uh, romantic love. Oh, so yeah, we'll continue with the sort of pseudo-trashy uh, subjects. What's a terrible movie that you will defend forever? Like a movie that like you know is bad, that like everybody know, like knows is bad, but you're like you're all wrong. This is amazing. Well, I, you know, I don't know that people think the craftsmanship of this movie is bad, but certainly I think it's controversial that I love Pretty Woman. You know, I think that it's. Mm-hmm. I've certainly read a lot of feminist critiques of Pretty Woman that suggest that like it's. It promotes a dangerous fantasy and obviously a distorted view of the sex work industry. But, you know, sorry, haters. <laughs> I just like, like my dad died suddenly about four years ago. And the night I got back from the hospital, I put on Pretty Woman. You know, I mean, there's really just something I just want to get into that fantasy really deeply. And I can't be objectively critical about it. It is really interesting because it is one of those films that I feel like it has something that prevents people... Like, yeah, there, there's something alchemic about it. Is that the alchemical about it? Where you, even rationally, you know, like, I feel like this is Lynn, like sort of doing something that I can't necessarily co-sign, but I actually don't care because there's something happening here that really is healing. And I've thought about this, but I don't, and I can't put my finger on what it is, but I am fascinated by the fact that I don't think you're the only one that feels that way. Yeah, I mean, on a really base level, you have two movie stars being movie stars. I mean, it's like, you know, Julia Roberts has never been more beautiful or more charismatic. And same with Richard Gere. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I mean, I think that you can absolutely critique some political stuff in it. But, you know, there's also like, it's not like it says, well, Jason Alexander does have the right to rape her. There's also some positive progressive stuff in it. It's true. Jason Alexander, yeah, he's a real asshole in that he's movie. such a yeah. dick. Yeah, the smarmiest. Yeah. I'm wondering, this is kind of a tough question to answer, but 
what single movie moment has stayed with you the longest? That can be a cut, a scene, an ending beat, anything in that vein. You know, I think that one of the most important movies in my life for many, many, many years has been the George Cukor version of A Star is Born with Judy Garland. And it's a movie that I do think the craftsmanship is incredible, but then it also has that emotional pull for me. You know, a combination of nostalgia, but then also every time I watch it, I cry again. And so there's this scene where, you know, Judy Garland's character has just become a big star as her husband, James Mason, has been arrested for public intoxication. And so, like, the head of the studio comes to visit Judy Garland in her dressing room to be like, how are you doing? You know, how are you handling this? And she has, like, a one-take breakdown talking about her alcoholic husband. And then she gets called to set, and she goes out, and she performs a virtuoso song and dance number. She, like, literally wipes the tears off of her face in one gesture and then goes to work. And that is just something I, I think about all the time. It's so stunning. Now, I'm thinking about it, too. (laughs) Are there any movies in the sort of canon, you know, these great movies that we're all supposed to have watched that you just straight up refuse to watch for whatever personal or petty reasons you may have? (laughs) I think that there's definitely been some movies I've avoided. I'm actually doing this side podcast right now or this other new podcast called It's the Pictures That Got Small, which I'm doing with Nate DeMeo, who does the podcast The Memory Palace. And we started it under quarantine as a way of just kind of connecting about movies. And and it's been our goal to watch movies we've never seen before. And a lot of them are these movies where we've been like, uh, I don't know. You know, I don't know if I really want to see Castaway. You know, isn't it just like a bloody volleyball? I'm not sure. But then you, wa- you know, you watch it and you see what it really is and you have a conversation about it. I know that I've, I've av- a genre that I've avoided in terms of classic Hollywood has been Westerns, you know, because I just felt like they were jingoistic. And if there was anything good about it, it they were, you know, sort of about male bonding and it just wasn't for me. And I've kind of really started consuming Westerns in a different way over the past year or so, particularly John Ford films. And that came out of this Polly Platt research because Polly Platt loved John Ford and I wanted to try to connect to why. It also might be that we're about to live through like a desolate hellscape and that kind of like accords with the Western thing. Yeah, we should learn how to ride horses, maybe. It feels like a valuable skill. In yeah. This Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. You may have answered this with the uh, John Ford movies, but is there a movie from that bunch that when you finally watched it, you're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. What have I been doing putting this off this whole time? Let's see. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think if there's a specific John Ford film I could say. I mean, you know, there's we actually watched this film of his called Cheyenne Autumn which is, I think it's his second to last feature. And it's a big technicolor, like mid-60s Western where Richard Widmark is the good guy. (laughs) And it's, you know, three hours long. And and it's about, you know, sort of whether or not these Native Americans who are the government is trying to relocate, whether or not they're going to treat them as human beings and like give them some land to live on. And it really kind of made me feel like, a lot of my assumptions that I had had about this kind of movie and particularly John Ford's version of it were wrong, not just in that this movie was good, but also in that it wasn't as serious, like sort of self-serious as I imagined those movies to be. Like there's a 20-minute comedy sequence in the middle of it involving Jimmy Stewart. And like it kind of made me understand that these movies encompass a lot more, both in terms of ideas, but also just in terms of filmmaking and genre than I had thought. All right. So... As you know, I worked for Sidney Pollack briefly, and he used to talk all the time about the fact that he was only interested in making movies about two subjects, love and war, because they were the only two things that we had not had any greater understanding of as humanity over thousands of years, which is an observation that still blows my mind, because he's right. (laughs) And so this is sort of the Sidney Pollack question, which is, what is your favorite movie about love, and what is your favorite movie about war? Wow. Gosh, I wish I had been able to prepare for this one. <laughs> we can circle back to this one, too, if you want a minute to to ponder. I'm just trying to think. I mean, hmm, I'm trying to uh, trying to think. Um, well, it's interesting. I'll say one thing while you're thinking, which is, is that this has been the reaction that we've had from a lot of people, which is this feels like the hardest question. And I think it's because our again, like our we, we don't. We're still figuring out love and war. And so thinking about the movies that we respond to most is like an inherently emotional thing rather than they're just like, oh, this is a checkmark list of the, the things that we have. And I know that for me, depending on the day, the answers would differ because yeah, of I mean, whatever my instinct about love or war is at that moment. And Lord knows in this environment, that's changing hourly. You know, I think I I probably could come up with like a list of 10 for each. Um, But when just as you were talking right now, the movie that just popped into my head, and this is, I guess, you know, on topic with my cookbook, but is uh, is coming home, which is about both. You know, it's it's about um, how how war changes who we are and how that can change the way we love and who we love. Love it. Great movie. (laughs) We've been kind of having this conversation about how contemporary Hollywood is in conversation with classic Hollywood. And I don't know, for me, I think contemporary Hollywood is failing to sort of instill a love of classic movies, particularly in younger viewers, even down to things like we got rid of all the montages at the Oscars. I'm curious from your perspective, what would you like to see the industry doing more of to sort of encourage, especially younger film fans, to discover old movies? to find these characters that resonate? 
resonate with them if contemporary characters maybe aren't. Well, I mean, one thing that I think would be great on the topic of the Oscars is that I think that they should televise the Governor Awards with the same kind of maybe not quite as much sort of fanfare as they televise, you know, the regular Oscars. But the Governor Awards, I got to go for the first time this past year. It's a really incredible event, and I think that it it does an interesting job of of showing you people that you know about, you know, like somebody like David Lynch and bringing somebody out like like Tom Hanks to introduce Gina Davis, you know. It brings in celebrities that people are already familiar with. And then there's 45 minutes of the night devoted to Lena Vertmuller, you know. So it's like, it, I think, I don't think it's like as obscurist as, you know, the Academy has decided that it is. But I don't think there are enough television channels for us to, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's a brilliant idea and actually one that I haven't heard before. And I, and I do. I think a lot of people would watch that. They'd be drawn yeah. in by the Tom Hanks of it all, and then they'd get an education on, on Rip Miller. And then, you know, you can do a red carpet. They have a red carpet. People show up wearing stuff, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, the stuff that I think that people assume is what draws the audience that the Oscars gets, all that stuff is there for the Governor's Awards. And arguably, the vibe is a lot more sort of raucous and joyous because no one's, like, nervous and anything else. Like, it feels—I've never been, but what I've heard from people that have is that it feels a little bit more like the Golden Globes. Like, people are there to have fun and celebrate cinema, not there in hopes of collecting an award. Yeah, definitely, because, I mean, there's no nominations, you know? Like, everybody knows who's going to be awarded when you show up. And, you know, I would say that, like, maybe the fact that it's not televised is why it's looser. But you bring up the Golden Globes, you know? Everybody seems willing to get drunk at the Golden Globes, and that is definitely on television. Um, I was sitting at a table behind Elton John this year at the Golden Globes, and apparently every time they cut to him, you could see me, like— you know, looking at Elton John out of the corner of my eye. And so I kept getting texts of people being like, why are you side-eyeing Elton John? <laughs> um, and I just didn't even realize I was doing that. So, yeah, I don't want, you know, I don't want people to get self-conscious at the Governor's Awards. But I do think the fact that, like, you're not, most of the people in that room know they're not winning an award does make it loose. And I think that the reason why they filled that room with stars, I mean, Jennifer Lopez was there this year, is because it's, so far in advance of the actual Oscar nominations that everybody is hopeful that they could schmooze with the Academy and maybe get a nomination. And you could still do that if it was on TV. I mean, arguably more effective as yeah. a sort of campaign event if it was on TV. Yeah. I've never heard of this idea, and I, I'm with you. All right, well, let's, I'm on the let's te- start. I'm, I'm on the team. Let's do it. Let's, let's start. The yeah. have yeah. a lot of free time right now for, for <laughs> protest and activism and organizing. So let's exactly. put it towards a cause where it really matters, right? <laughs> I, do love, I do love the idea, though. Oh, man. All right. I'm going to take us home with our final question, Karina, which is a question we ask everybody. If you could hold a worldwide screening of one movie for the entirety of planet Earth, what movie would you choose? Oh, gosh. You know, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but it probably would be the Judy Garland version of A Star is Born. Because for me, it is, you know, not only great for all the reasons why I've said, but it's also, there's this subgenre of Hollywood movies about Hollywood where, you know, the point of view of it is supposed to be, like, from the audience member of being like, this industry is a is a wasteland, isn't it? But the actual point of view of the film is, but Hollywood's kind of great. Like, you're sitting there here watching it, and are you not entertained? And I think the um, the Judy Garland version of A Star is Born does the best job of of threading that needle in a way where it's like, 
how, however entertained you are and you are quite entertained, like there is still a tragedy here. There's a tragedy about what fame does to humanity. So, yeah, I think that if you're going to show the world a movie, you might as well be showing them a movie that will allow them to kind of second guess what movies are doing. And Finn. Perfect. <laughs> We're out. Karina, thank you so much. Thank you, guys. This was really fun. From Luminary, the Blacklist podcast is a production of The Blacklist and Ninth Planet Audio. Our executive producers are Franklin Leonard, Kate Hagen, Han Zani, and Jimmy Miller. Gabrielle Horton is our lead producer. Nicholas Pertel composed our theme music. And this episode was edited and mixed by Kevin Liu. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at thathagengirl, T-H-A-T-H-A-G-E-N-G-R-R-L. You can find Franklin on Twitter at Franklin Leonard and on Instagram at Franklin J. Leonard. And you can find The Blacklist on both Twitter and Instagram at The Blacklist, T-H-E-B-L-C-K-L-S-T.